Last week we looked at the idea that two passages in the New Testament summarize and encapsulate God's call to us as Christians. Two passages that give us a framework to live out our Christian lives. They are the Great Commission, recorded in Matthew 28, and the Great Commandment, recorded in Matthew 22. These two passages give us those three broad areas that we can use to live by. Love God, love your neighbour, make disciples. Last week we focused on what it means to make disciples and from the text in Matthew 28 we saw there are at least three aspects to what it means to make disciples. I said to you last week, don't think that it's somebody else's job to make disciples. Jesus said these words to us all. So it's for each and every one of us. And in the text there is a going, there is a baptizing, and there is a teaching. Jesus, go. And so there is that need for us to go as we go about our everyday life, as we connect with people, make relationships, love people, be open with people, seek perhaps to share something of God's love with them, maybe pray for them, invite them to an event. There's the going that we need to do. And then there's the baptizing. Jesus said, you know, there's a moment of decision and it's to be marked by water baptism. And finally, teaching. Jesus says, go make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything that I've commanded you. That need to get into the word of God and the word of God to get in us and to live that word by the power of the Holy Spirit. This week, I want to focus on the great commandment recorded in Matthew 22. If you have a Bible and want to turn to it, Matthew 22, verses 35 to 40. It says this, an expert in the law tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these commands. And Jesus is saying that the teaching of scripture, the Old Testament, which Jews often refer to as the law and the prophets, Jesus is saying it's all summed up in these two commands. You remember last week I told you there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament law, 613. And there would be a natural discussion. It was normal within Judaism at the time to discuss which, which are the ones we really, really, we know we need to keep them all, but which are the ones we really need to be sure of. They would use language, which are the ones that are heavy, which are the ones that are light, which are the ones we really need to make sure we pay attention to. And Jesus said, do you know what? The whole lot boils down to two. And if your life is, is working out these two, you're not far away. Love God with everything you've got. Love him with everything. And love your neighbour as yourself. This teaching of Jesus had really been grasped by the disciples. They taught it as they planted churches when Jesus went back to heaven and, and they were planting churches. They taught this. In fact, I told you last week, if they had a membership in their churches, this would have been on the foundational statement. It would have said, love God with everything you've got and love your neighbour as yourself and make disciples. That would have been on there. The Apostle Paul picked it up as the disciples taught, as the churches grew. The Apostle Paul picked it up and he taught it repeatedly. Listen to his words in Romans 13, 8 and 9 and see how he echoes the teaching of Jesus. 
Let no debts remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Paul goes on to say, The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. That was foundational teaching to the early church. They got it. This week... I want to focus on what it means to love God with all our heart, mind and soul. What it means to love God with everything. And another week we'll look at what it means to love your neighbour as yourself. But what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? We can and should express our love for God in worship and praise It may be words we say or words we sing. It may be with lifted hands or dancing or instruments. It may be resting in silence, in awe and wonder at God and his presence and his greatness. You can read all of that in the Psalms. It is right and good and proper to express love and praise for God in all these ways. But if that's where it stops, it is shallow to say the least. Both Jesus And the Apostle John make it very clear as to what it means to love God. And maybe this sermon should come with a bit of a health warning because it is very challenging. So 1 John 5 verse 3, this is what John says. This is love for God, to obey his commands. Jesus says in John 14 verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. The prophet Samuel said in 1 Samuel 15, 22, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of God? And here's his conclusion. He goes on to say, to obey is better than sacrifice. See, it is relatively easy to say or sing, I love you, Lord, It's another thing altogether to obey. So let's explore this a little bit further this morning, looking at the lives of the disciples and their struggle with all of this. So we'll look at the lives of the disciples in general and the Apostle Peter in particular. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus takes the disciples on a journey. And on that journey, they're going to learn three things. They're going to learn who Jesus is, They're going to discover he is the Messiah. And then they're going to have to learn what kind of Messiah Jesus is. And then finally they would learn what it really meant to be a disciple. What it really meant to love God with everything. In Mark chapter 4, the disciples are in a boat with Jesus and a violent storm erupts. The text says the waves crashed over the boat and the boat was filling with water. Now an aside. I wasn't going to say this, but I will. Read the Mark chapter 4 text. Compare it to the other versions in the, in the Gospels, and you'll find this is generally true of Mark. Detail. His, his eye for detail is incredible. It says Jesus was asleep on a cushion. On a cu- What's the point of the cushion? Now, there is a point of the cushion, but you won't find out unless you do the module on Mark's Gospel in Word and Spirit. 
So in Mark chapter 4, the disciples are in a boat with Jesus and a violent storm erupts. The text says the waves crashed over the boat and the boat filled with water. Now that would scare me. I don't know about you. Waves flying overhead, boat filling with water. Incredibly, Jesus is asleep. And the text does say, if you read it, sleeping on a cushion. And so they wake him up and they say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Shows you how serious it was. These are ardent salesmen. They know the seas. They've been in some storms. They know this one's potentially going to kill them. Verse 39 says, He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Verse 41 says, The disciples were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Who is this man? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? You see, at this point in his journey, the disciples haven't really grasped who Jesus is. They know he's different. They know he's special. But it's not until halfway through the gospel, Mark chapter 8, before the penny drops. Since that storm... They've witnessed Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. They've witnessed the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. They've seen Jesus walk on water. Plenty of clues in that. And Jesus thinks maybe it's a bit the right time just to tease this out of them, just to continue the journey and push them on a little bit. So finally, Mark 8, 27, he says to them, who are people saying I am? And they say, look, some are saying you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others are saying you're you're Elijah, the end time Elijah. And still others are saying you're you're one of the prophets. You're, You're in that league. You're somewhere there. There's something about you. And then Jesus looks them in the eye and he says, well, who do you say I am? What about you? And in response, we get Peter's famous declaration in verse 29. Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the one, the one we've been waiting for, praying for, hoping for. I believe you are him. The next thing Jesus says to them is a real shock. It's not what they expect. They're proclaiming at last Jesus is the Messiah. At last they've got it. Verse 31 tells us straight after that declaration, straight after that great declaration of saying you're the Messiah, the first thing Jesus says to them is this, verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And it's almost as if they didn't hear the be rise again bit. They hear he's going to suffer and he's going to die. And and Peter says, that is not the plan. No way. You're the Messiah. That is not the plan for the Messiah. Verse 32, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. No way, says Peter. That's not how it's going to work. In fact, Peter would say, that's not what we understand the scriptures to teach about the Messiah. We know what the scripture teaches. Death and suffering cannot be God's will for the Messiah. For Peter... And every Jew living at the time of Jesus, they were expecting the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah. But God's Messiah was going to be an all-conquering warrior. For centuries, Israel had suffered at the hands of oppressive enemies. And at the time of Jesus, Israel was under the rule of Romans. 
They were occupied by the Roman forces and the Romans were an oppressive, brutal regime. They longed for the Messiah to come and set them free. Peter expected a Messiah who would ride a war horse, gather an army, defeat the Romans, defeat the enemy. The Messiah would set up rule, usher in the kingdom. Never mind the kingdom is near, the kingdom would be here. Israel would return to the golden age that they longed for. That golden age when King David ruled and the nations served them and peace reigned. And they knew what the scriptures said. Isaiah 11 is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Verse 1. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is King David's father. That's why the genealogies in the Gospels show Jesus from the line of David. The shoot from the stump of Jesse. It's him. Isaiah goes on to say, From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. That's why the Gospels record that moment when the Spirit comes down from heaven and rests on him. And as the Spirit rests on him, they're all thinking, he's the one. He's fulfilling scripture. Isaiah goes on in verse 4. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And it's as if Peter was saying to Jesus, that's what I'm talking about. That's where I'm at with the Messiah. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Peter's saying, we want to see some striking and slaying around these parts. We want to see Roman soldiers disappear. We want to see Pilate gone. We want to see, we want to see a coup. We want to see a takeover. Let's get the striking and slaying going. Isaiah 2 verse 4. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. That is the reality that Peter and the disciples and every Jew expected the Messiah to usher in. So Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Jesus, you've got it wrong. In verse 33, it tells us this. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter and said, Out of my sight, Satan. That's a very strong rebuke. And then Jesus says something which contains a truth that at different levels we all have to wrestle with. Jesus says to Peter in verse 3, You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. In this season, in these circumstances, in all that's going on, in all the confusion, in all the struggle, in all the difficulty, you just don't have in mind the things of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God, but, but maybe the wishes, the desires, which are not bad things, the plans of man, but they're not always the same as the plans of God. Peter just couldn't see God in this. For the life of him. As followers of Jesus. Like Peter and the disciples. There are times when we find it difficult. To see what God is doing. There are seasons and circumstances. When we can't for the life of us. See the plan or the purpose of God. Either through the things that are happening in the world. And in our nation. Or even in our own lives. And there are scriptures. And we, we think we have an understanding and we make an application and it's not going according to what we understand the scripture to say. And somehow, somewhere, we can't see the purpose of God. What an up and down few minutes this was for Peter. Typical of Peter, isn't it? 
He makes the great declaration, you're the Christ, you're the man. Jesus says, this is a revelation from God, Peter. God is at work in you, Peter. And Peter sees it clearly. I guess he's got a big smile on his face as Jesus says, well done. You got it. And Peter is seeing clearly and he understands and he's on a high. The next minute, Peter is being rebuked by Jesus. And now Peter isn't seeing clearly. And there are things he doesn't understand and things he can't work out. This is part of the ongoing challenge for us as followers of Jesus. We live with the tension of things we don't understand and questions we don't really have an answer for. It's part of being a follower of Christ in a broken world. For Peter to love Jesus with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his soul, with all his strength. For him to be a disciple of Jesus from this point on was going to require trust. And trust is not always easy. It's easy when everything's going well and you've got all the answers and you've made the declaration, you are the Christ and it's been a revelation from God and it's been amazing. It's easy. Trust is not easy when you can't work it out and life seems a struggle and answers aren't coming and the tunnel seems ever longer. Trust is central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The very nature of trust is that we don't need to have all the answers. We trust him. For Peter, there were things he would not make sense of until after the resurrection. He would live with confusion. He would live with answers till after the resurrection. In fact, things would get worse for Peter. He'd run away. He'd deny knowing Christ. It would just get darker for him. And for you and me, there are things we won't make sense of until we see Jesus face to face. You can put your trust in all sorts of things. But ultimately, whatever they are, they won't get you through. In the context of war and facing enemies, the psalmist says in Psalm 20 verse 7, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, amen. The righteous run in and they are saved. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians 2, God has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lamentations is probably not a book of the Bible that is well read. It's a fabulous book in the Bible. Because there are seasons when we need to lament. And Lamentations gives you language to use. It's an outpouring of grief by Jeremiah the prophet. The people are in captivity. Loved ones have been killed and God has allowed it. It's a painful season for Jeremiah for lots of reasons. But in that painful season, Jeremiah expresses both grief and hope and trust. They can coexist. So Lamentations 3, 19 to 24, listen to his words. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet... 
This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself the Lord is my portion. Therefore I will wait for him. Here is Jeremiah saying, amid all I'm going through, amid all I'm feeling, amid, and I know what God's word was. He prophesied it in the previous book that bears his name, Jeremiah. He knew what was coming. He knew it was the word of God, but still there was pain and confusion for him. And Jeremiah saying, look, amid all I don't understand, I will trust him. I will trust him. When the disciples were really struggling to understand what was going on and it got more and more confusing the nearer Jesus got to the cross. Didn't get any clearer. It got harder. Jesus said to them in John 14 verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. The antidote to a troubled heart is trust. It is not always to have the answers. It is always to trust. And this is not a blind, empty, hopeless trust. This is a hope-filled trust. A trust expressed by these words of Jeremiah. In the midst of all that challenge, Jeremiah says, As I sit, as I take time to be in God's presence, I call this to mind. And therefore I have hope. The Lord's compassion never fails. Ultimately, the Lord's compassions will triumph. And I tell you this morning, they will triumph in your life in Jesus' name. Ultimately, whatever the circumstances, whatever the situation, whatever the confusion, ultimately the purposes of God will triumph in your life in the name of Jesus. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And Jeremiah says, I will wait for the Lord. He's my portion. He's my deliverer. He's my strength. He's my tower. I will run into him and I will be saved. There is strength in trusting God. As we trust him, we can find rest. As we trust him, he pours into our lives something that comes from heaven itself. He pours in a grace, he pours in a strength. I've heard this testimony so many times. I've experienced it myself. I've gone into some situations that are desperate. Christian people facing things you think should never happen to a Christian. And I go in with a little bit of fear thinking, how am I going to help them? Not doubt, how am I going to help them here? And I find something amazing. I find them saying, God's a good God. And even in this, he's given me a strength that I never knew I had. Isaiah puts it like this in Isaiah 40 verse 31. Those who trust in the Lord, they will renew their strength. Hallelujah. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. As you trust in him, For wherever you are, whatever circumstances you are in, as you trust in him, I pray that even now your strength will be renewed in Jesus' name. I pray for a supernatural outpouring of grace upon your life in the name of Jesus. So that as you run, you will not grow weary. And as you walk, you will not faint in the name of Jesus. So Jesus has shown the disciples he's the Messiah. 
He's shown them that to love him, to follow him, to be his disciple, they have to trust him. Loving Jesus is trusting Jesus with everything we have. Even when it doesn't make sense, I choose to trust him. And then he goes on to teach them, he's not the warlord Messiah coming to set them free from the slavery of Roman rule. He's the suffering servant. And he's come to set us free from the slavery of sin and death and hell. He's fighting a much bigger battle, a much bigger war. And he would do that through his death and resurrection. Isaiah tells us it was God's will to crush him. It was God's will for him to suffer and die and defeat death. And now finally Jesus takes the opportunity. He does this on three occasions in Mark's gospel. Following this exchange in Mark chapter 8, he takes the opportunity to teach the disciples what true discipleship means, what it really means to love him with everything. Mark 8.34, he called the crowd to him. Along with his disciples. Jesus wanted the crowd to hear this. Because people don't follow Jesus always for all the best reasons. The crowd followed Jesus for what they could get from him. Who wouldn't want a three day conference where Jesus is the caterer and the teacher? And Jesus looks to the crowd and he looks at his disciples and he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But Jesus was saying to these people, if you're going to follow me, it's going to involve a Calvary. If you're going to follow me, it's going to get potentially dark and difficult and painful. And if you read the Gospels, guess what? The crowd disappeared. Not as many followed him after that moment. For Jesus, loving God meant being obedient. Obedient to death. Even death on a cross. For you and I, taking up our cross is about a walk of obedience. It's about the moments in our lives when our will, the horizontal if you like, Clashes with his will, the vertical. And in that moment, we take up our cross. We die to self. As the old timers used to say, we crucify the flesh. It's wrestling in prayer and coming to the point of saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus can't just be an add-on to our lives like a fashion accessory. Like a bracelet we wear on our wrists and show off every now and then. Like a cross we wear around our necks. It doesn't work. You can't say, I love you Jesus and live as you please. In John 15, Jesus says, if you abide in me. There's an if. If you abide in me, I will abide in you and you will bear much fruit. God's plan for your life is much fruit. Don't settle for anything less. If people tell you you'll amount to nothing, reject it in Jesus' name. If people tell you there are nobody, you'll never achieve anything, reject it. Believe the word, not the lie of the enemy or the words of careless people. Jesus said, abide in me and I'll abide in you and you will produce much fruit. But too many people want the fruitfulness without the abiding. They want the blessing without obeying the blesser. It doesn't work. In John 21, as I come to a close, 
And I know this is very challenging. There is recorded another challenging day in the life of Peter. Peter had denied knowing Jesus three times. And now he is face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Once for each time, Peter has denied him. Verse 17 of John 21 says, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked the third time, do you love me? Sometimes Jesus can ask challenging questions. Jesus says to Peter, there is a future for you. I want you to feed my sheep and I want you to feed my lambs. You're not written off. You're not counted out. You've seriously messed up. But there's a future for you. I have all sorts of ministry projects for you. There's great fruitfulness ahead. In fact, not long from this day, Peter would preach a sermon. 3,000 people would respond. A revival would break out. But Jesus is saying, what matters right now is this. Peter, do you love me? Not, are you busy for me? Not, are you doing amazing projects? Not, are you the top name at the conference? Not, are you doing incredible things for me? That's a given. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. You will be fruitful. I've prepared good works in advance for you to do. But what I want to know more than anything else, do you love me? The greatest commandment, the first call on your life, is to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. In verse 15 of John 21, Jesus asked Peter, Do you love me more than these? Scholars speculate as to what the these are. It could be, do you love me more than you love the other disciples? Do you love me more than you love your friends? Are there relationships that you're putting in front of me? And my will, and my way, and my word... It could be, do you love me more than you love the fishing? Peter was going back to fishing, back to the career, back to what he knew. Do you love me more than you love the career, the busyness, your ministry, your projects? Do you love me more? So what about you and me this morning? Jesus is asking each and every one of us, am I number one? Am I Lord of your life? Do you love me? We're about to share in communion. And I wanted to leave this space for you to do business with God. He's a God who loves you so desperately, so passionately. When we take of this broken biscuit and we drink of this juice, it's telling us of a love. No greater love is there than this, that a man lay down his life Jesus laid down his life for you and me. He loves us. So when he challenges, he comes from a place of love. What about you this morning? What about me? Jesus is asking, am I Lord? Am I number one? Is there an area that you need to adjust and give over to me? Is there something you need to lay down, let go of? Is there something you need to pick up and get involved with? Is there something you need to repent of and lay aside is there a step of obedience that you've been wrestling with and now you need to say, Jesus is Lord, I'll take the step. What is it for you this morning? Is Jesus number one? Let's pray together. Please, would you close your eyes? And in the quietness of this moment, before we share in communion, I want to 
give you an opportunity to respond. This is not a salvation appeal. This is for people, men and women who are Christians. And maybe this morning, I don't know where you are in life this morning, maybe you're in the midst of a whole heap of confusion, but you want to affirm afresh that even in that, Jesus Christ is my Lord and I affirm my trust in Him. Maybe for you there is an issue that He's been challenging you with and you want to say, today I make Him number one and I will adjust my life to come into order with His will. Maybe you're doing great and you just want to affirm afresh, Jesus You're my Lord. Whatever it is you want to say to me, whatever it is you require of me, here I am, wholly available. If that's you this morning while everybody's praying with eyes closed, you just want to stand up just as an outward way of saying to God, God, you know what I'm saying. I'm telling you afresh. I'm making you Lord of my life right now. And I'm going to pray. If that's you this morning, you just in a fresh way, you want to say, Jesus, you're number one. I declare I'm making you afresh, the Lord of my life. And you just stand up right where you are. Thank you, and I'll pray. Whatever it is, whatever the circumstance, whatever it is you're bringing to God, whatever it is he's challenging you with, you're saying yes to him, I give it to you, I surrender to you. If there are any others just want to stand right now, and I'm going to pray. And then we're going to share around the communion table. Father, we stand to say, I give you my all. I give you my heart. We stand to say, Lord, that whatever you're speaking to us, whatever you're saying to us, whatever it is, We stand to say, give us the grace and the strength to do what you are calling us to do. If we have to let something go, help us to let go in Jesus' name. If we are to pick something up, help us to pick it up in Jesus' name. Lord, we want our lives to count for you. We want our lives to count now and to count for eternity. We want to know that that fruitfulness that you've talked about. Lord, we want to abide in you with everything that we've got. We want to give you our all. We want to love you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. Lord, I pray for these people who are standing. I pray, Spirit of the living God, fill them afresh in Jesus' name. Pour out your blessing. Open the windows of heaven and do a work on the inside that is going to make such a difference on the outside. I pray, Lord, from this moment there will be a fresh encounter as they take of that bread, as they drink of that cup. May they know that you love them so deeply and the plans you have for them, they are not to harm them. But the plans you have for them are to give them hope and a future. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We're coming around the table of the Lord now and it might be you just want to do business with God. Maybe you want to pray on your own for a minute. Maybe you want to pray with somebody next to you. Maybe you want to just take time to thank God for this incredible demonstration of love. I don't know, but use this space to really encounter him. And just when you're ready, please come and take communion. The tables are at the front and tables are at the back. Thank you.